I'm Janet Ellis and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favourite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, Anthony Horowitz. Um, I'm, I'm going to say, Anthony, that you're a writer, but that's slightly to understate what you do because you are quite brilliant, extremely prolific, right across many genres, and I'm sure we will touch on that. But I have to say, it's such a pleasure to be able to say to you, I love your books. And I also have several small people who would very much like me to say, Alex Ryder, at you, because you have written for so many generations. But we're taking you back to little you, to child you. And what book have you chosen for us? Um, well, I hope I've, I, I haven't broken any rules because I haven't chosen a sort of a novel or a sort of a work of fiction. I've chosen what used to be called a comic novel, a comic book. Um, and, and that actually is, is undersells it because the book I'm holding in my hands is uh, a Tintin book. Uh, and it's actually my favourite Tintin book, The Seven Crystal Balls, which is the first half of a two-book story. The sequel is called Prisoners of the Sun. And this is really the reason why I became a writer, in a way. And how old were you when you first read it? I would have been about nine, I think. Nine, I, became, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was ten, and so I, I'll say I was nine when, when in my second year at a really horrible uh, prep school in North London where I was extremely unhappy, Tintin was my escape. He was sort of the, the lifeline. And how did you come by the copy? Who gave it to you? Um, I have a feeling that I inherited Tintin from my brother. Books tended to pass down through the family. And my memory is that the first Tintin book I ever picked up was just in the house. And and it was my brother's and I read it and loved it. And then I started to buy them because, of course, they hadn't all come out by that time, as uh, I think. Uh, There were still some that came out in my later life, particularly the later ones, like Tintin and the Picaros and maybe even Bianca Castellón with the the, the magpie that's stolen. Um, so, So that's how I first found them. How did you feel when you picked the book up again to read it for us, unless you reread it regularly? Well, I do. I, I surround myself with Tintin material. I have pictures on the walls. I have a rocket on my desk. I have some of the figurines. I have, you know, the Thompsons in a car and, and various other pieces. Um, and I even try to collect original Tintin art, which is very, very difficult to find and unfortunately way too expensive to buy. But I have got just a few little scraps here and there of things originally done by Hergé, a couple of his signatures, that sort of thing. Um, I do look at the books from time to time and... When I look back at them, there are, there, are, there are things in them that I love still. I mean, I still love Tintin through and through and, and owe so much to the character and to the world created by Hergé. I think now I have a greater aesthetic understanding of how well made they are, how beautifully produced, how great his art was. And you know that he was in his time considered to be, certainly towards the end of his career, not just the writer of comic books, but a great artist in his own right. So... Uh, on many, many levels, these books affect me aesthetically now. But at the same time, I still remember the pleasure the jokes gave me, the, you know, the hard of hearing Professor Calculus and the, the drunken Captain Haddock and the, and the sort of um, ridiculous detectives, Thompson and Thompson, one with a bending up moustache and one with a bending down moustache and, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, the biggest thing I'd ever tinted books, and funnily enough, the Seven Crystal Balls doesn't actually have one in it, are, are the secret passages. I've always loved Hergé's secret passages. 
is. And in fact, I've always thought of my life as being trying, has been spent trying to find the next secret passage. In a way, a book is itself a secret passage because it takes you out of reality into fantastical worlds. And all my favorite books, you know, even things like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, have a, you know, through the through the cupboard into, into the fantasy land, the secret garden, through the secret door and into the magical garden. Um, and, and in the Tintin books, there are doors everywhere. Everything has a door in it, a, a fireplace in Professor Muller's study or a, or a tree outside which will lead you down to the headquarters of the, you know, of the Blue Lotus. Um, th- that's another reason to love these books. There's even a fake one, isn't there, when they go backstage. We'll get onto the plot in a moment, but I enjoy that where, where Haddock goes into it thinking it's a doorway. So when, when you were reading, when you were nine... Where did you go to read? Did you have a special place? Well, I remember at the school where the library had a few chairs in it, and that, that was the place I guess I read most often because there wasn't there weren't many places to go. I also used to go. We we used to build little um, camps or, or, or sort of houses along the playing fields. Um, at the back of the school there was a huge cricket pitch, and every summer we would all construct sort of little hideaways out of bits of wood and corrugated iron, cardboard, anything else you could find, and and the, and we'd have sort of secret places and I used to read in there as well for me reading was the escape it was an escape from both the school from the brutality of the school and the fear of it but it was also an escape from me my hatred of myself for being the stupidest boy in the school for being overweight for being bullied for being you know for just being useless and worthless and so when I read I was in a different place and reading therefore wasn't just a case of finding a favourite spot and opening another book. It was a, it was get me out of here. It's interesting, you know, because obviously you have the, um, let's call it the curse of being the famous one in the family. And obviously the famous one in the family telling their story tends to be obviously first person and a very strong memory. And to be perfectly honest, initially, I thought you were an only child. All your experiences as a child are so vivid and vital and solitary was it like that at home or could you share that unhappiness with your siblings? No, not at all. I was an only child in some respects in my family. I mean, I am extremely close to my sister now and, and do often see my brother too. But we grew up in such a peculiar family. Obviously, Philip and I were both sent off to boarding school at the age of seven, you know, which is very, very early to leave the nest and to go on sort of fend for yourself, particularly if you are put into a very brutal environment. And I have to be honest and say that at that time, my brother was never particularly kind or, you know, thoughtful towards me. He was not the guardian figure he might have been. Though I don't blame him for that. It's just how things were then. And my sister was also sent off to boarding school. And, you know, to give you an idea of how separate we were from each other, when my sister was expelled, I didn't know. Nobody told me. Uh, I never heard about it. And it just sort of, you know, suddenly she was at home again and, and I didn't really quite understand what had happened. But that was how we were, this strange, alienating, separate family. And my father, who was... I think not a terribly nice man, I'm afraid. Not a very honest one. I I think he was on the edge of criminality. The one thing he actually gave me, and for which I will always be grateful, is the love of books. I inherited his library. And although Tintin is my love, and and it was something that I found, my books are his, and my love and literature, particularly of Dickens and Austin and Hardy, come from him. An extraordinary thing that somebody who is so extraordinarily adept at communicating, came from a background where people didn't communicate at all. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's so perverse. I will say, Janet, the one one thing I remember about my childhood is that 
At the dinner table, conversation was extremely important. And if, as a child, you were not able to hold your own in the conversation and actually contribute, or if your comments were considered to be stupid or childish, the famous words up to the nursery would ring out and you would be sent out of the room to go and eat on your own upstairs in the nursery with the, with a nanny who was waiting for you. You know, my father did like his intellectual conversation, but it wasn't an emotionally grounded family. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, if it was a conversation about the news or about politics or about the world, it was, it was, that was fine. But it was never, you know, feelings didn't come into it. And as I say, my father, when I told him I wanted to be a writer, offered me nothing but ridicule. And your mother? My mother was different. I mean, the the thing is that as I've grown older now, I've come to realise that their relationship was complicated and not, I think, a very happy one. Again, I don't know. In this sort of family, you 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 know, did they even sleep together? I I don't think they did. Um, and she, in her later years, after my father died very young, I was twenty two when he died, and indeed his death was the inspiration for the Alex Ryder books, which opened with the sentence, "When the doorbell rings at three in the morning, it's never good news." Well, it wasn't the doorbell; it was a telephone, and. It rang at three in the morning with the news that my father had died. And I still very much remember that moment. I can see everything in the room and myself. Um, but uh, my mother, after that, was much happier and became much closer and, and could, could live, I think, more as a fulfilled woman. I mean, she, her life had been thwarted in many ways since she was a girl. And finally, she found herself. And in finding herself, she found me. And we were very, very close. She loved the fact she saw my books being published, the earlier ones, and was so happy for my success. And my sister always says that I was her favourite. Anyway, the underprivileged middle child, she called me, which was which meant actually I was the overprivileged middle child in her eyes and, and in what she she did for me. And I miss it to this day. I mean, you know, she would absolutely love listening to this conversation. Let's go straight to this book, which I have to say I hadn't read before. And although I remember that sort of voiceover from the television series, Rages, Adventures of Tintin, and, <laughs> the, and the iconography of him is so strong that, I mean, my in my dining room, there's a Tintin huge figure that the son of some friends, who's a painter, did. So I feel very close to Tintin, but very much alongside. So this is the first time I've actually immersed myself in the story. This would be this would be a very unfair question, so we won't do it completely. But can you summarise the plot? It's based sort of on Tutankhamun, on the you know the, the discovery of the uh, tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt. Uh, and there was a story that many of the uh, professors who were the archaeologists who dug into that tomb were cursed and, and died as a result. There have been many films made on that subject. And I think that's clearly what has inspired Hergé. The book was written in 1943, and I'm not sure when Tutankhamun was discovered, but nonetheless, there is a link between the two stories. And in this case, what has happened is, is that um, a number of professors of archaeologists, rather, who have visited not Egypt but Peru seem to have been cursed. Um, Each one of them is falling into a trance, the only clue of which are pieces of crystal found on the floor of their office or bedroom or wherever it is this happens. And later on it transpires that they're all in hospital together now and that every day at a certain time of the day they go into sort of paroxysms, contortions of pain, and they've clearly been cursed in some way. And Tintin and Captain Haddock and their friend Professor Cog who has a very large role in this story, um, get onto the trail of what has happened to them uh, and, and begin to investigate. But this investigation is truncated when Conculus foolishly puts on the bracelet of a mummy called Rasko Kapak. The actual figure is beautifully drawn, incidentally. Anyway, um, in the course of the investigation, staying at the home of one of these professors, Professor Conculus puts the bracelet of Rasko Kapak on his wrist, which is heresy. It is, it is heresy. He is therefore kidnapped 
kidnapped and stolen away and uh, Tintin and Captain Haddock spend the last part of the book trying to find him. Which they don't do instead. You have to get to the sequel and to go to Peru to find him. I didn't realise until I'd embarked on reading this story that it wasn't going to end on the last page. <laughs> it was a bit of a shock to the system. There are only three sets of Tintin books where this is true. There's um, The Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure. And then later on, there's Destination Moon and Explorers on the Moon, which are both double albums. For my money, they're the best. They're my favourite albums, partly because... Helgi has an interesting connection with narrative. I mean, there is a sort of narrative in some of the books, not all of them. At the same time, he tends to go up sort of anywhere that he fancies, and they sort of become a bit of a comical mishmash. But these books do have really solid stories. And actually, I think the best story he ever told is the story that begins with the Seven Crystal Balls. I do think, I think it's extraordinary how, speaking as somebody who hadn't read it before, you are immediately plunged so accurately and completely into Tintin's world without any necessary explanation about who the people are, who they are to each other. It's really deftly done. It's extraordinary because his relationship with Captain Haddock, for example, is established in two or three windows and it is it doesn't change, but it's really vivid and I understood immediately who they were to each other. And in fact, in some ways... These the story seems to be about friendship. They're all linked by friendship. A lot of the characters are friends of each other and then reveal things. You know, when, when they're first together, um, Captain Haddock and, and Tintin go to a, a magic show because Captain Haddock is convinced that he can turn water into whiskey. Sadly, that doesn't turn out to be true. But they, they he recognises immediately somebody on stage as an old friend. And that old friend theme comes up again and again and again through the story. And obviously, Tintin's friendship group, well, it doesn't include anyone in his peer group at all. They're all completely different ages and stages to him. They are immediately and very kindly linked. You know, nobody nobody has a go at any one of these, these people in the friendship circle. They are really, truly friends, loyal and persevering. And it's really effectively done. But Janet, I absolutely love the way you've encapsulated the love of my life, these books. And I think that friendship is an enormous part of it. I mean, there are, yes, of course, there are bad guys in there, but even the bad guys, like one thinks about Captain Allen later on, who is always sort of, and Rastapopoulos, who is sort of slightly ridiculous, the sort of the film producer. Um, even they are not exactly sort of sadistic or malevolent. They're just just bad and stupid and slightly infantile. But there is a lot of friendship there. And I think also the other word you used, you said you understood the world of Tintin. Hershey's genius is that he created not just these wonderful characters, but a completely believable world that houses them, which is partly down to the artwork, which, as I say, is very, very beautiful and, and beautifully realised. But, you know, it's, it's something that very few writers have done. I would say that J.K. Rowling managed it with the Harry Potter series. Certainly Charles Dickens with his world, the characters of the people of the world, which can only be defined by its author as Dickensian. Uh, and, and I think Hershey did it too, that, that, that you know exactly where you are, that people are kind to each other the whole time, so that, you know, the, even the sort of the drunken sea captain who becomes Tintin's unlikely best friend and whose behaviour is always awful is, is his friend. So is the little dog, Snowy, who sort of in the books talks, um, not to Tintin, but does at least have a sort of thought bubbles and, and we know what he's thinking the whole time, is, is, is a good good friend to Tintin. And Nestor, the butler who appears in this story, is sort of still, you know, he's a servant, but he is very loyal to Captain Haddock. And this sort of warmth of character is really what these books are about. They, every time I return to them, I get that smile, that sense of, of, of familiarity, um, which it does so very well. 
And obviously it's really hard for anyone who hasn't seen. Can there be anyone who hasn't seen what Tintin and his world look like? Uh, should we have a go at describing what the books look like? Because it is, I know Hergé called it Lean Claire, but that doesn't, that doesn't really do it justice. Because as you said, it's, you know, the, the, the mummy is beautifully described. The, every single place they go to is uh, as vivid as a scenic backdrop. You have, you are in no doubt, are you, that first of all, they know where they are and you can see where they're going. And secondly, that Hergé absolutely understood his imagination and how to transfer it onto the page. I began by saying that these are more than comic books. And if you're going to try and talk about the art of them, which of course is difficult in a, in a non-visual medium, uh, I think that first of all, you have to remember they were in black and white to begin with and they went into colour much later. Uh, originally, even The Crystal Balls was done, uh, it was originally done for a magazine called Le Soir in France and that would have been in black and white small strips. I think I'm correct in saying that Hergé was the first writer of graphic novels who took the dialogue out from beneath the bottom of the picture and put it into balloons connected to the characters' mouths. If you look at a page, I'm looking at a page now, I've opened randomly the book of um, The Seven Crystal Walls, and it's a sequence in which Captain Haddock is trying to find his way onto the stage to watch a magician turn water into whiskey, which is itself a rather comical sort of conceit. And it's just beautiful, really. I mean, you've got, first of all, uh, on the top left, you've got Captain Haddock. The, the head of a ball has fallen onto his head and shoulders, <laughs> so he can't see. Yeah. And he is sort of charging helplessly forward towards a metal door. Then you cut. And again, when I say cut, yes. these are very cinematic, they these are, books. They are. So now you cut to the magician who is a typical Hergé character in the sense that he's got little round wire glasses on. He's wearing a frock coat. He looks slightly Victorian. He's bald with just a tuft of black hair. I sort of related a little bit to Captain Calculus. And we've caught him at exactly the right moment. He says, and what have we here in this glass, ladies and gentlemen? Water? No, this glass contains whiskey. Yes, whiskey, ladies and gentlemen. It's all so ridiculous. But, but there it is, and there are the props, and his top hat is on the tail. And then he turns around as he hears this noise coming from the edge of a stage. And the noise is now in a bit like a sort of a Batman film. It's boom, dong, ding, dong, bing on the left. And then, and this is what's so spectacular... The middle panel of this page opens up and we get the sort of the huge panoramic view of the whole theatre now with the proscenium arch. There's a, a yellow bat inside a pentangle of the, as part of the backdrop. We can see the audience and the orchestra. And in the, right at the closer up to us is people leaning out of the royal box to see what on earth is going on. And that in itself is a beautifully composed picture. And it really sums up as instantly Captain Haddock now dragging a drape behind him and a picture which he somehow managed to to horn onto on, onto the top of the bull's head and um and blind and helpless charges in followed by various other people uh, into it he then in the next picture a smaller picture falls into the orchestra pit uh, the orchestra players are seen trying to to avoid him another boom he's fallen into a drum and the final shot of the picture has captain haddock looking up at the bull which which almost seems to have come to life now with a tongue sticking out of it staring at him with bemused eyes and that is the end of the sequence and on that one page, I hope I've described it well enough. You have, because I'm looking at exactly the same page. It's page 16, and it is just the magic of Hergé, the magic of this story, and the artistry of it in one... It's just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven panels, uh, of which the biggest one is in the middle. And also slapstick on the page. Yeah, it's... Well, it's even better than slapstick in a way, because yes, it's got physical comedy in it, and it's, it's Buster <laughs> Keaton is in there, and I don't know. It's, it, and, and Peter Sellers, really, Clouseau later on would play <laughs> the same sort of territory and then you cut to the next page where it's raining outside and they go out this is 
graphic art at its very best. It really is. It really is. When I'm reading these books, I put lots of little stickers in um, to make me go back to pages because they've got something funny or different or whatever on them. And here is my sticker, which points exactly to the illustration you've just described, right in the middle. There is my sticker, there is the illustration. Because I was really struck by that too, that if um, anyone ever issued this as a, a greetings card or something, you'd be perfectly happy to send this to absolutely anyone. It's just, and the colours, I know it was originally black and white, but the colours are great. They're they're really, um, they're properly old-fashioned colours. You know, they do their job, but they're not Technicolor. Yeah, also, don't forget that in the original, they wouldn't have had this format. I mean, the original were, I think, just straightforward strips. And, and then later on, when he redivided it for the books, he, he brought his art to bear on them. And also, you'll notice in the books, there's another really wonderful thing. Go to almost any page in that book and look at the bottom right-hand last picture on the page. And it always ends with either a cliffhanger, okay. a surprise, or something of importance. Oh, yeah. So, again, you know, he really does construct the whole book to tell the story as well as the individual pictures. I mean, I just opened one at random uh, here and I've got Tintin uh, staring out of a street, out of a tree saying, there it is, there you've got it. Or the one page before, it has has Conculus. He's about to find the the, the fatal bracelet and the bottom of page 39 has him leaning forward over a bush with a huge question mark above him. What's this? What's this? And you've got to turn the page to find out and there it is, a bracelet. Well, I never. It's the one that was on the mummy. How very curious. How did it come to be here. So do you see the story absolutely motors through the book? That's a good challenge. I've got page 51, which has Captain Haddock. And again, it's a door. It's a door joke. Opening the door into Nesta. Tintin himself has a question mark above his head. And Captain Haddock, all cheerful now, because I think he's had a few noggins by this point, is just saying, let's go. You're right. It leads It leads on. And he's changed clothes. He's got back into his old sea captain uniform. And we don't even know where yes. he's going. So, again, uh, yeah. you've got to follow. It's sweet. let's go. And it's not, not just a tint in that. It's to the reader. We're off on this journey. We're off on this adventure. And, again, I love the fact that all these books are adventures. And they're all about travel. You know, when again, as a lonely little kid, it was... I wanted to go on the trail of the Seven Crystal Balls. I wanted to go to Peru. In fact, I did. I went to Peru and wrote um, a book set there called Evil Star, which is the second book in a series, uh, The Power of Five. And it's all straight out of Tintin. It's my journey to Peru following in Tintin's footsteps. I I always used to say that I have been to everywhere that Tintin went to in the books, except outer space. And even there, I managed to send Alex Ryder into into a space satellite. So uh, (laughs) Mission accomplished. Yeah. And also, we're we're sort of of an age, I think. And um, when I was little, you know, the idea of going to Peru was as foreign as the idea of, you know, revisiting where Paddington came from, because I couldn't quite imagine it. But Hergé was so keen to get everything right in the books. It's accurate, you know, and I know that he used to go and draw cars and buildings to make sure they were accurate. And, And actually a bit later on, that got him into terrible trouble because he wanted to draw a particular car outside a particular building for one of the stories. And it was during the war. And as he was drawing, he realised that the building he was looking at was being used by the Nazis because he was in German-occupied Belgium. And he better vamoose because otherwise, if he'd been caught drawing this house and this car, he would probably have been arrested, which I know is what happened to him after the war. But at this point, he was still working. It's curious that the Crystal Balls was actually closed down before he finished the story because Le Soir, the newspaper that he worked for, uh, got into trouble. Or no, it was considered to be a Nazi-sympathising newspaper. And um, after the war, he was accused of collaboration. But that was very, very quickly cleared up. I mean, you know, Hergé has had a bit of 
mud thrown his way, Tintin in the Congo is no longer available uh, to be bought because it's considered to be very racist in its depiction of Africa. And as I say, the, he was also considered to be a collaborator because he insisted on producing his work in a Nazi-run newspaper during the war. But I see him more as an innocent. I think he was very much inside his art. And, um, you know, yes, there are some stereotypes that come from drawing in the 1940s and 50s. But by and large, I don't think he was a bad man. I, I mean, he was also a philanderer. I mean, he had many affairs in his life and um, two marriages. I met his second wife. Uh, Fanny Remy uh, years ago. And yet, you know, he produced these wonderful books. So I can't think anything but good of him. This book's been described as the most frightening of, of all the Tintin books. Do you think that's right? Could, did you feel at all afraid of it when you were reading it? I can see why that description comes. There's a lot of it happens at night and the the way the Manco Capac comes alive and sort of, and, and also the predicament of these poor archaeologists in the hospital. Another great big panel somewhere in the book has all, all of them lying in the bed where they're all having these... That's the bit that got me. And they are being tortured, although you were talking earlier about kindness and you must remember that the second part of the book, or well, you haven't read it, so I won't give it away completely, but it does finish with redemption and with kindness towards even these archaeologists uh, who are, at the end of the day, forgiven. But there, there is a sort of a slightly nightmarish quality. But if you even look at the cover of the book for Seven Crystal Walls, you'll see that, that Hergé never lets a humour go too far out of sight. You know, the sequence in which Orasco Capac comes to life and the professor is kidnapped and everything happens to dark could be seen as quite dark and scary. But at the same time, having, uh, I think his name is Arbuthnot, I can't remember now, but this other professor here whose clothes are absolutely tattered and torn to shreds and the sort of the dog running away because he's scared and, and a crystal ball whizzing, a, a sort of a fireball whizzing around this professor who is levitating into the air. This is the cover of the book. You can see that the, the humour is always there to stop it being too scary yeah and again although i I think i might have found the idea of the climate the figure the sort of skeleton like figure of the mummy climbing in your window with a crystal ball is quite an alarming image but he doesn't ever take that through to the next panel if you like does he he sort of takes you back to something else after that so you're you yeah, you don't you don't dwell on it. In other words, you are right. There are moments that are scary in these books. I mean, think of the image somewhere in there of Raskar Kapak, this this Inca mummy uh, who comes in with a in from the darkness. He's skeletal. He's small. His his little thin arms are raised, and there's a crystal ball above his head, and his eyes are blazing as he prepares to smash down the crystal ball and and put the curse of the Incas on the next victim. But even in that moment, because of the I suppose because of the colour and because of the context. It isn't scary. You could sort of go along with it with a smile. I think children of even the youngest age can read this and, and not be afraid. And that's not how the book starts, after all. The book, the book starts in what you might call the sitting room, doesn't it, where people are quite safe and sitting down and talking about things. So I think if, he, if, he might, if he'd started with that image, it might have been a bit tricky. But I think the way he handles it is really deft. And also, although he obviously, um, from what I've read about him, he wouldn't have wanted to necessarily be seen as a teacher. But he was obviously such an enthusiast about different worlds and different places. So that enthusiasm translated onto the page makes you feel in very safe hands, even when the scary stuff is happening, because he just wants to, he tells you, he wants to tell you, he wants to show you. Yes, I think, you know, I think what we should remind ourselves is that these aren't necessarily children's books. I mean, I said that I started reading them when I was nine years old, but 
certainly in Belgium and France, the audience is pretty entirely or or largely adult. And I get the feeling that, that to a certain extent, Hergé was writing for a broader audience than a young audience. I don't think he sees himself as a children's writer. And anyway, the books are certainly have a universality about them, certainly in terms of the number of countries that they appeal to and the number of different age groups. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He used to refer to Tintin as his son, didn't he, when he was talking about him? He wrote a letter to Tintin at some point, uh, 64 actually, fact fans, uh, where he expressed some disappointment that he hadn't really picked up any character traits from Captain Haddock, who seemed to be his favourite. Um, that, that Tintin was, you know, although he was stout and steadfast, was not actually, um, he wasn't adaptable, you know, but he says, um, it isn't up to a father to guide his son in the choice of his shortcomings, <laughs> which is a very sweet attitude to your creation, I think. Well, there's another picture that he drew, which I will never forget, which has Hergé as a self-portrait chained to the desk with Tintin standing behind him holding a whip. And that sort of shows an interesting take on the relationship between them, because by the end of his life, he wasn't very well and yet still felt a need to, to produce Tintin books. And I always think it's really interesting, but in the very last book, Tintin and the Alpha Art, he actually dies midway through the book. He's, he joins the very few other writers who actually die midway. One of my great fears for myself, by the way, can you imagine writing 300 pages of a whodunit and dying before you can actually say who did do it? But, but in the Tintin and the Alpha art, Tintin is held up by gangsters who are becoming, as the, as the pages go on, less and less finished and more and more like just small scribbles. And Tintin is taken across the page to his fate at gunpoint and then just fades into blankness. And that's Hergé's died, and that's it all over. And I'm, I'm very interested in the relationship between great writers, great artists, and their creations, because just as Sherlock Holmes uh, was created by a man who came eventually to dislike him so much that he threw him off the Rackenback Falls, and just as James Bond was looked down at by, by Ian Fleming, I think Hergé occasionally did have his misgivings about being tied to this character who was so hugely popular and made so many demands of him. Have you ever been tempted to write a Tintin book? Well, it will never happen, I think. I mean, you know, I've done Sherlock Holmes and I've done Bond continuation novels. Yeah. And I've always said that the only one I would consider doing would be to finish Tintin and the Alpha Art. I don't think it looked like being a great book. I mean, it's a complicated and quite confusing story. And... I'm pretty certain that the estate would never, ever allow it to happen. So it's, it's, it, it, it's, not, it's not a choice I'll ever be given. Because he was, he was having weekly blood transfusions by the end That's of his correct. life, wasn't yes, he? yes, he had a blood illness. the most extraordinary thought, apart from anything else. Mm. And he did have a sort of 
oddly self-flagellating side to his nature, didn't he? Because when he had the the first affair, when when he and his then wife had gone on holiday to the fragrantly named Gland in Switzerland, and he had an affair, and then um, sort of said it was because of the people he'd been mixing with before he went away, and he'd regarded it as a weakness. And obviously that was something he repeated to see if that was true throughout his life. But he, he and his wife, although they separated, they didn't divorce for about 17 years, did they, after he'd split? And then, then he married Fanny. He married a, a, a young woman who'd come in to be a colourist. Yeah. Um, Fanny, I forget what her first name, I mean, her maiden name. Should we, should we have a moment with the exceptionally satisfying cussing of Captain Haddock, which is definitely, apart from the endless noggins of whiskey, is his, is his trademark and, and his monocle. But um, it's just so inventive. And I just think I have to do the most massive shout out, as the DJs say, to Leslie Lonsdale Cooper and Michael Turner, who were the translators for Tintin and and so believed in it as a project that they translated it for free initially because Methuen thought it wouldn't work and thought that comics were only horror stories. But I think that the fact that, that they have managed to translate that fantastic style of swearing into such satisfying English is um, worth whatever honour they conferred. I hope it was plenty. That is absolutely true. I mean, if you read the books in the original French, which I have tried to do, you know, to come up with the words like Bashir Bazooks, uh, which is one of the things, and all the other language are traits they give to um to Captain Haddock, all of which do sort of make sense when you when you sort of work out what they what they mean, is is phenomenal. And and Matthew in Germany did a very very good job of, of, of producing the books. Although I think Hergé was heavily involved and probably read them. I don't know if he read them in English, but um one of the, one of the things that I that I've seen would have loved to have got is his original cover for um, the Crab with the Golden Claws, which he translated into English himself. He does the lettering and everything. He is, I think, quite well involved with, with his work worldwide after he'd created, you know, the Tintin studio. Apparently he did give them pretty free reign with, with the translation. You know, he, he, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm not an English speaker and you do it. And I think they, part of the reason it works so well is because their love for it shines off every page and they managed to really translate each individual character. But apparently, um, Hergé saw someone, uh, a customer, having an argument in a shop. <laughs> the shopkeeper said, um, you four power packed to the customer as a sort of last epithet, which refers to the 1933 European Treaty. And I think that uh, obviously swear words in themselves are quite satisfying to say sometimes, but new swear words are just phenomenally satisfying. You four power packed. I think I might use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Isn't it? It's really funny. When it comes to your writing, and obviously, as I, I said at the beginning, you, you've written across many genres and and for all age groups. Is is there is there an age group you prefer to write for? Not really. No, because whether I'm writing a children's book or an adult book, and here maybe there is a connection with what I was saying about Hergé and his view of his audience. I don't really think of children oh this is a children's book therefore I've got to be careful with my language or I can't have too much violence or that sort of thing I don't sort of you know put one hat on for writing kids books and another for writing adult books I immerse myself in the story and I don't separate the audiences and so to say I prefer one audience to another would be to say I prefer one book to another and that's not true so for me story is everything if I was told that I could only be remembered for one thing in this world, I would choose probably Alex Ryder rather than anything else, but only because 
more by accident than design, Alex Ryder ended up introducing perhaps a whole generation of young people to the joy of reading. Or so I have been told endlessly by parents and teachers, and it's a lovely thing to hear. And because I've come in my older age to recognise the supreme importance of fiction, of storytelling, of literature, of books in our lives, how if we're going to rub shoulders with each other on this crowded planet and understand each other and learn where we've come from, how we got here, where we're going, we need to go to story to do it. Because, as I say, I have become something of a sort of a torchbearer for for reading, I'm very proud of the fact that Alex has been part of that, uh, Alex Ryder. And so that, I guess, is my, my, the one book I want, would want to be remembered for, Stormbreaker and the Alex Ryder series. But I love writing everything I do. I mean, whether, whether it's a new Hawthorne novel or a, a James Bond or Sherlock Holmes or, or whatever it is I'm doing, I, I, I find the act of creativity, the sort of moment where you sit down and it all suddenly makes, makes sense. I was doing an escape for Alex Ryder last night. I haven't started writing the book yet, but um, I just suddenly had this idea for an action sequence. I suddenly sort of saw how it could all work, how all the different pieces could come together, a la Tintin, if you like, with different panels that should all fit together to make a sequence that would be something that you could visualise and enjoy and which hadn't been done before. And when I do eventually come to write it, it'll just be a joy. You you published, like I said, I think we're we're the same age, and you published your first book at 22? That's right. Um, And was that just after your father's death? Uh, My father wasn't alive to see me published. Um... Uh, so yes, it must have been just after he died. Um, literally, I, I'm not even sure he knew I had been accepted for publication. So maybe the book came out when I was 23 and it was 22 when I was accepted. Uh, but um, actually, since you're asking me, I do remember that my mother was still in mourning, I think, when the book came out. I remember we were living in a very small house together, uh, she, which she'd rented because of the financial collapse that followed my father's death. And then this book turned up at that house. And that was my first ever children's book. And it gave her enormous pleasure. As I said, she would have loved listening to this conversation. She'd have chipped in and told, told you how wrong I was about pretty much everything. But nonetheless, she would have enjoyed it. But it's, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because obviously your father ridiculed and suppressed not your love of reading, he encouraged that, but your your ambition to write. And it seems like as if his death released your writing because you started to write with such amazing, first of all, prolific, you know, and, and producing books that they're so confident. And that's the thing to me that absolutely, above, above the dexterity with language and plot and character, your writing has a wonderful confidence, which always makes me feel as anything I'm, I'm reading by you. You just sort of go, come on, and on, on page one, which is, which is actually, I think, an amazing ability because some writers don't have that. Quite a lot of writers don't. They, they will draw you in differently. But you absolutely present the world and then just pull the curtain aside and go, we're off. And I think that's that's an amazing thing, especially coming from a, a childhood that did not in any way make that seem possible. I think it's very kind of you to say all that. Maybe what I'm remembering is that when I was a kid, I wasn't that clever, and books often 
distance themselves from me by being too clever or too complicated or too slow or too whatever. You know, later on in life, I learned that, you know, a book doesn't have to have an explosion on page three and sort of two murders by the end of chapter one. The, the first book I ever read, which I always say was a transformative book uh, from sort of adventure into sort of more classical, proper literature, was um, L.P. Hartley, The Go-Between. I absolutely adored that book. I read it when I was about 16 or 17, and it taught me that the books could be slow. They could be, they could be about character and about a situation rather than about an adventure. And that has very much guided my reading. But in terms of writing, I'm still writing for the kid. Even when I'm writing for adults, I'm writing for, for people who are easily bored, who can lose their place if, the, you know, if there are too many characters and you have to go you know, on page 67 and you have to go back to page 31 one to try and work out who this character is, that is an impediment to the journey. You see, reading, like writing, and they are very, very close cousins, I always describe it as being swept along a river. You fall into the water, and as a, as a writer or a reader, all you want to do is to stay afloat. You paddle like crazy, and you try and avoid the boulders and the bulrushes, and just keep going wherever this river is taking you, and that is the joy of writing. And to do that, you have to have the, the, the qualities that you were talking about. So... You know, I know my place in the pantheon. I don't ever think of myself as, you know, one of the great writers or one who will be... What I'm doing, I think I am now doing quite well. And that's just come through practice and sort of... and, and age. Yeah, I think you are doing it quite well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you I was slightly nervous in coming to this conversation because you do have a, um, a tendency of putting real people's names in your books... And I thought, oh dear, if I don't play it right, I might meet a horrible death on well, page three. First of all, I only ever put friends into my books. And although I'm very happy to think of you, Janet, as becoming a friend of mine. But secondly, I only ever put friends in in a way that will make them smile and give pleasure. Alan Conway, who is the author in my books, Magpie Murders and Moonflower Murders, is a horrible man who puts people into books to humiliate them and to, to, do, to speak unpleasantly about them. I never do that. I, I'm trying to write books that only make my friends smile. So Michael Mopurgo will forgive the reference in your latest book, the fact that you failed <laughs> you skewered to apply me. to a You skewered me. <laughs> Michael does turn up my new book, but I hope he will just have a smile from it, because, again, there is no malevolence in it. I love Michael. He and I, he and I going back to, again, back to Hergé, were younger writers pre-J.K. Rowling, who used to get invited to festivals in strange parts of France and often in Belgium together. And nobody seemed to know our work at all. This is long before Warhorse catapulted him to fame and Alex Ryder did something of the same for me. Uh, and I remember saying to him one day, you know, Michael, what they're going to put on our gravestone? Big in Belgium. That Those were the days. And, and, and I have very, very fond memories of travelling with the younger Michael around the festivals of Europe. Did you, did you used to tell your, your two boys stories when they were little or was it a bit like um I always think uh doctors families struggle a bit because you have to be seriously desperately ill if your father or mother is a doctor before they take any notice of you whatsoever or did or did that storytelling thing come naturally to you with your own family too I read lots of books to my children I didn't want them just to grow up with my stories and so you know from from Alberg's you know Janet Alberg and and um Funny Bones and and Burglar Bill on through obviously Harry Potter was there and Roald Dahl and and such but I also did tell them stories too my wife was always 
always quite angry about the fact that my stories usually were sort of interactive stories where the, where the children were characters and I would get them to a door, to three doors. There's a red door, a yellow door and a green door. Which one are you going to go through? And the trouble was, whichever one they chose, there'd be a monster on the other side, i.e. me, and I would then pounce on them and we'd have a fight. And my wife would say plaintively, the idea of a bedtime story is to get the children to go to sleep, not to wire them up so much that they'll be awake until the morning. However, you weren't the only person doing that. You <laughs> do, do you think? Do you think you write um, your stories particularly for a younger age group, for your own little self, or for another rather happier child? I think the books are largely written for myself. The kids' books. I mean, it's revealing that the first ten children's books that I wrote, which did not do very well, were all about rich, unhappy, often overweight kids with horrible parents. And so obviously there was a strong autobiographical element going on in this. And um, it was only when I put that to bed and just said, I'm, I've done that, I'm not doing it anymore. So books like Granny, Granny is about my grandmother um, and is a, is a very yeah, accurate that's... picture of how she was. Um, the little boy in that called Jordan Warden uh, is, um, is me. Uh, and um, later on in Gruesome Grange, David Elliott is me again, also with horrible parents, always living in large houses like I did. Snatchmore Hall was one of them, or Thattleby Hall, <laughs> one of my favourite little early jokes. So it was only getting rid of all that stuff and moving to Alex Ryder, who was very different to me, went to a comprehensive school, smart, clever, fast on his feet, athletic, ordinary, likeable, that I think perhaps I did something that sort of, you know, that, that launched my career. And no need for therapy. Oh, it's all been in the books. I'll never go to a therapist. If, I, <laughs> if anybody were to unpick all the sort of problems in my head, I wouldn't be able to write anymore. Just, just one last question. You know, I'm aware that you, you are always in a state of writing or planning or planning even two books ahead. So when you said that Tintin took, took you immediately to, to that, that place, that place, probably a place of quiet and safety, where, where is that for you now? Where do you go when, you, when all the noises in your head get? Innocence. A world of, of friendship, you've talked about that, and about, of happiness of secrets and surprises. I have never, since I was a boy, seen the world as it really is. This is a very Tintin-esque. You know, I walk past a shop and I see that it hasn't sold anything, an antique shop, and the same antiques have been there for five years. There was one in Crouch End when I used to live there. And I know immediately that it's not really an antique shop. It's, it's the headquarters of some sort of secret society. If I'm in a museum and I'm bored or an old country house, I start tapping the walls looking for that secret passage because they're in Hergé's books, so they might be there in real life too, and they'll take me out of the boredom of looking at these pictures which I'm not interested in and take me down a corridor to something strange going on. Uh, whenever I see the world, when I meet people, I never quite believe that they are exactly what they say they are. It's one of the reasons why I, I write murder mysteries because that's all about delving behind the neck curtains and finding the truth of people. And again, in Tintin, disguise and lies and, 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 and deceit and, and uh, such, all done there with a smile, is what motivates the stories, and that's what still motivates me. And so I suppose I'm still vaguely in the world of Tintin, uh, even now after all these years. But as, as you say in the book, why, why should you believe anyone who makes things up for a living? That's exactly right. It's been absolutely and utter pleasure. Thank you so much. And I've really loved going into Tintin's world with you. It's been terrific. Well, I'm so happy to have introduced you, Janet. I mean, that's, that's, that's as a result. And you've got all the books now to enjoy. 
Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast. <laughs>